October 5th, 1995. It was lunchtime in the library when Stephen O'Brien, who ran down from the reference library in excitement, said, Did you hear about Heaney? I couldn't believe the news. I phoned home to check with Catherine, but she was out. I found our neighbour, Nora Stack, Paul Durkin's cousin from County Mayo, but she hadn't been listening to the radio. I went downstairs to the lending section to look at his books. Sure enough, we had Death of a Naturalist, North, Seeing Things, Station Island and Wintering Out on the shelves. I placed them all on a display shelf after Bernard Cotter from the Tory Top Road Library phoned to confirm the brilliant news. I phoned Pat Cotter at Waterstones. He was as jubilant as myself and as disbelieving. Are you sure? Are you sure? Yes, Jesus. The first person I could share the news with at the front desk was Eamon Corcoran, the old Republican activist who walked into the library at 2.15. Did you hear about Heaney? Dear God, not another dead poet. So soon after Sean Dunn. No, no, it's Heaney. Heaney, he's won the Nobel Prize. Eamon was stunned. Tears of Irish Republican pride welled up in his eyes and began to roll down his cheeks. He took off his trilby and bowed to me in admiration of all poets. It's a great day for Ireland, he said, filled with emotion. A great day. God bless them Swedes. I was overcome and began to cry with Eamon. Library customers looked on in pity. We didn't care. It was a great day for Ireland. It was a joy to be alive on such a day. Thank God we'd lived long enough to see this happen 70 years after Yeats's Nobel. But Yeats was one of the gentry. Today an ordinary Irishman, no better than ourselves, has won the prize. Robert in reference library admitted that it was exciting and nearly as important as Stephen Roach's win in the Tour de France. The day went on like that. We all walked on air. My God, Heaney is still in his fifties, yet he has joined the august company of Neruda, Aliasandre, Elitis and Sepharis. When Catherine walked into the library, I told her she was thrilled. We decided to buy a bottle of wine on the way home to celebrate an expensive good Rioja. When we came home, we were glued to the TV. It was the lead story on the six o'clock news, pushing paedophile priests and the Bosnian war to one side. For a few minutes, the news programmes had turned their eyes to the materials of paradise. And where was Heaney? Absent. On a walking holiday in Greece, they say, out of contact. So the media, TV, radio, was forced to use old clips, old footage, old tapes. I thought of what Heaney said, when he won the Duff Cooper Award for North in 1975. During the past few years, there has been considerable expectation that poets from Northern Ireland should say something about the situation. But in the end, they will be worth listening to if they are saying something about and to themselves. Oh, Tom, thank you so much for reading that. I was getting very overcome myself listening to it and remembering that day. And actually, I think Peter Zerr was on the news that day as well. Weren't you, Peter, talking about him from the Writers' Centre? I think, yeah, I think I think they said, yeah, a camera crew arrived at the, at the Writers' Centre uh, and, 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 and people from different countries even. Yeah, yeah. 
I know because he was he knew was away, wise man that he was. But anyway, that was Tom McCarthy reading an excerpt from his journals just published by Gallery Press. It's called Poetry, Memory and the Party, 1974 to 2014. It's a poet's life full of excitement, as you just heard there. Travels, literary encounters, successes and frustrations, it has to be said, which traverse 40 years while also including the politics of Ireland unfolding during this time. So Tom McCarthy was born in Capaquin, County Waterford, in 1954. He was educated at the local convent of Mercy and at UCC, University College Cork. He was a fellow at the International Writing Programme in Iowa from 1978 to 1979 and he's worked at Cork City Libraries until 2014. Tom has published 10 collections of poetry, including The Sorrow Garden, which came out in 1981. The last Geraldine Officer came out in 2009, as well as two novels and two books of non-fiction. He's been praised highly from many, many uh, people and critics and awards. Awards include the Patrick Kavanagh Award, the Alice Hunt Bartlett Prize, the Lawrence O'Shaughnessy Award for Poetry and the Annual Literary Award of the Ireland Funds. He's a member of Aesona and Tom lives in Cork. Well, the late Brendan Kennelly said of Tom McCarthy, Not many poets have the gift of being able to write so tenderly about private affections and so acutely about public figures and events. And I think that's beautiful praise indeed for Tom McCarthy, a poet who's possessed of his own distinctive voice and craft, a poet not afraid to take risks, to engage the political and the personal in poems of memory, love, history, poems that have always been fueled by what he calls himself the autonomous region of the heart. And it's no wonder then that the late poet Dennis O'Driscoll has said of Tom that along with Paul Muldoon, Tom McCarthy is the most important Irish poet of his generation. And we're absolutely delighted to have you here at the breakfast table this morning, Tom. You're very, very welcome. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. So, Tom, I think just to start off with, I, I was just, I wanted to ask you about the whole, I suppose, the whole idea of, of, of literary diaries. I mean, it's, obviously, there's, there's lots of fine examples that we could think of, you know, Pepys or Alan Bennett or Virginia Woolf. And you yourself mentioned in the journals the, the ones that you've been reading over 40 years, you know, Stephen Spender's journals, Evelyn Waugh's, Noel Cowers, just to name some of them. So you, you obviously have a huge interest in, in reading them. And I can understand why, because I suppose writers' diaries have a strange compulsiveness to them. Um, you keep reading to see what's in the next entry. You kind of get sucked into the life that's described. And it got me thinking as I was reading your own journals, I mean, is is the diary a place of untrammeled or unbuttoned truth? Is it a refuge? Is it a way of explaining the world to yourself or or yourself to the world? I mean, I suppose I'm wondering, you know, what makes somebody write diaries for, for 40 years? Are they, you know, are they for yourself? And did you, did you, did you think at the time you were writing them that ultimately they'd, they'd be published? I definitely didn't think they'd be published in book form. I thought they might be published in extracts now and again. I'll tell you, the like uh, when I was a student at UCC, uh, I loved André Gide's diaries, I mean, which I think are wonderful diaries. But Gide said, said something very interesting in his diaries. He says that over time, the pattern of our life doesn't lie. You know, it really doesn't matter what we're writing in the diaries. It's at the end laid out all together. There's a kind of truth in them. And the truth is in the kind of life revealed, you know. It doesn't really matter whether it's self-conscious or unself-consciously written. Just the life laid 
bear over so many years has an integrity that that is just unassailable, you know. But there was an, another more immediate reason why I started keeping them when I was a student and a student poet. And that was, I remember receiving the first editions of those Honest Ultramans from Belfast. And it really impressed me that in every quarterly there were little diary accounts of what had been going on in Belfast and sometimes with photographs of of readings by Jimmy Simmons and, and Seamus Heaney and Michael Longley. And, you know, I remember saying to, I'm sure it was probably Theo Dorgan or maybe even Patrick Crotty, you know, nobody is recording what we're saying and nobody, nobody will ever know anything that happened here in UCC in the campus. They'll never know about the readings we organised the workshops we gave, they'll know nothing about us because nobody is creating any kind of record. And I I meant just at that time, I suppose I was hoping we'd have a, some kind of a magazine. We might put out a magazine of some kind which would maybe on a yearly basis have a sort of an account of the year as, as it happened so that we could give an account of ourselves. What are we, it, it wasn't important that we felt important or unimportant. It was just that there was some account of ourselves. Well, Tom, the journals start in 1974 on January the 4th. I loved the opening. I was immediately drawn in. You were the young Thomas. You're 19 years of age. You're going to be 20 on March the 6th of that year. It's nearly your birthday, Tom. <laughs> the journals begin with a westerly wind rattling <laughs> the shutters of Glenshalan House in West Waterford, rattling away. And it's for our listeners, that's the home of Dennis H. Fitzgerald, the brigadier, a grandson of the Duke of Leinster. And you're attending his Victorian gardens and you're staying in his house at weekends and you say here in the kitchen the 10 o'clock pips from the BBC coming from the Brigadier's Hacker Radio are my sole companions. So you've set an amazing scene. And as a young man, you were really clearly immersed in this Anglo-Irish world of the Brigadier and his friends that visited. The writer Molly Keane comes to stay. I love that bit where you get her a hot water bottle and she gives you two volumes of Proust and she says, a little light reading for you, Thomas. Um, the, the, the Stevens, very funny, uh, the Stevensons of Castle Dollard. <laughs> I remember that, yeah. And of course, she was reading Proust in the original French because she, she read and spoke French, which of course I didn't, you know. There's great humour in the diaries as well. But then I loved all the, the flurry of people arriving, like the Stevensons of Castle Dollard, Mrs. Merrill of Villiersstown Rectory. Then you had... Uh, yeah, who, whose husband had been a, um, the American ambassador in Hungary oh during the Hungarian uprising. Of 56, yeah. I mean, just amazing. And Claude Coburn, of course, and his wife. And then you have the Brigadier returning from London and he's full of gossip about Conservative Party gossip and the luncheons. And so so there's picnics. Oh, I loved the martinis. And, you know, you're having snacks in the drawing room beneath the, the beautiful portrait of um, Lady Inez. Lady Inez Fitzgerald, yeah. yeah. Just yeah his mother, yeah. Just sounded yeah. beautiful. But Who was the, the Tatler Beauty of the Year in 1899. I know, but you, you really give a sense of that. And so I was just wondering, how did you come to know the Brigadier and to work in his gardens? And you become his friend, but you also become friend to the guests as well. It's totally like the currency was, was flowers. The currency was, I just knew about growing flowers, planting flowers, taking cuttings, tending to flowers, which I'd learned, a skill that I'd learned in my grandmother's backyard. She had hundreds of, of, 
all kinds of geraniums. She was blind, so geraniums were very important to her because of the texture of the leaf and the smells. Um, mm-hmm. So I'd learned early on, maybe at the age of six and seven, how to tend to flowers and things. And then I'd started working in the garden, originally in a garden near Capoquin called Tivoli House Gardens, where Americans, Hallamores, had come to live. They'd leased the house for 20 years from Sir Richard Keane. And they, it was really in their garden. Their head gardener was Michael Phelan. I always remember Michael sort of pruning roses and pruning rambler roses, which he hated, which are difficult to kind of control and to make beautiful. But he'd be up in the ladder singing the green, green grass of home. He was always singing Tom Jones songs. That, but he was a very good gardener, actually, and he taught me a lot. So I came, my brother Michael got, was already gardening in the Brigadier's Garden and he went back to Cork to, he was training to be a radio officer. So he said to me, look, would you mind doing the garden for me? I'm, I'm gone out of here. So I just took over the garden and the brigadier. And yeah. in a way, the brigadier didn't realize what he was taking into his house. He was basically taking in somebody who'd take control of the whole thing, <laughs> not just the garden, but, but everything, <laughs> you know. Yeah, no, that's so true. But at one point as well, you say that, um, it was a physical place, but it's also a metaphor for an inner place, the place where the poems get written. Oh, definitely. It became my yeah. key place for the poems, like the desk. I had the oak desk, which I still have actually. I originally lived in, in the, uh, the coachman's annex, uh, mm-hmm. to the house, which was beside the stables. And I had a lovely room there and, and it, it stayed as my library actually for years and years. I remember then one winter, which must have been the winter after I started the diaries, I wrote to the brigadier in London. I said, look, it's a bit too cold in the coachman's house. I'm moving into the main house. I've taken over the bedroom across from yours. <laughs> so he wrote back. All he, he could do nothing about it. He said, that's very, that fine. very that's fine, Thomas. Of course. <laughs> I was very cheeky. You're very cheeky, Thomas. <laughs> Yeah, you were you dead right as well. I think I would have do, done the same thing. I was thinking because, you know, the, the diaries opened in, in, in 74 and that, that was a very tough, it was a very sinister tough political time. time in Ireland in the 70s. People have um, forgotten. I mean, the year your diaries yes. begin. Sure. I mean, I mean, the, uh, the year your diaries begin was also exactly. because the year the Dublin yeah. bombs, the Northern Ireland executive yeah. collapses, yeah. the troubles, so-called, are in full swing. And and throughout the diaries too, I mean, because you have there's an ongoing fear that the brigadier might himself be attacked or murdered or his house burnt down by the... Yeah, 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 murdered, yeah. He was warned actually several times by the superintendent from Dungarvan, you know, that he was a target and he, you know, used to eventually, particularly a few years later, it went, the sinister years went on for a long mm-hmm. time in Ireland. People tend to forget that now. The sinister years went on from the early 70s well into the late 80s. I mean, in the early 80s because of the tension created by the hunger strikers he he, he used to sleep with his purdy shotgun mm. by his bedside loaded and ready to fire if they came for him you yeah, know it's scary isn't it and molly it keen as well was worried know, wasn't she tom did you say that yeah she was but molly was kind of incredibly innocent mm. politically you know she had no idea in a, she had almost no idea of the political realities, you know. Yeah. She just knew how to survive elliptically in Ireland, you know, as Elizabeth Bourne would say, kind of semi-detached, 
from Ireland and its histories. Yeah. And she that's how yeah. she lived, you know. Yeah. yeah. But to, to just get back, Peter was speaking to you earlier about the idea of diaries and a writer's diary is a portrait of the writer, but it's also a portrait of the literary milieu that they inhabit. And your milieu in the early parts of the journals is that of UCC. You're a student of John Definitely, Montague and yeah. John Lucy. Yeah. But it's an intense, exciting time as you emerge as a poet, a student poet, which is, as you said earlier, surrounded by fellow young poets and students like Theo Dorgan, yeah. Patrick Cosher, Sean Dunn. And I loved the kind of sense of you're all jostling to write, yeah. to get published. There's a healthy sense of rivalry, of jockeying for positions. It's frustrating, but it's exciting and inspiring. But also it was a, jo- a jockeying to, f- to, f- to get Montague's oh, favour, yeah. you know, yeah. a jockeying to make sure that Montague thought we were the best <laughs> in the neighbourhood, you know. And if Montague said we were the best, well, then that was accepted. You must be the best, Montague said. That. <laughs> but, but at the same time, I had a funny kind of relationship with Montague in that I, I w- didn't want his help. Yeah. You know, it was really funny. Like he, he was very generous to us. His house, the house that he and Evelyn had in in 25 Grattan Hill near the railway station in Cork City, like it was open yeah. house. They were so generous and Evelyn was so generous too to all the young students who would constantly come banging on their doors all times of day and night in trouble or looking for, uh, even looking for food yeah. really sometimes. But John would welcome you in and he'd always want to chat about poetry and he'd he had a great collegiate sense of writing, which I never really shared with him, which is that he would show you everything that he was writing at that very moment. And he would want you to be involved in correcting it and improving it. Yeah. And he enjoyed, if you suggested, no, I think you should change two lines here. You should move these two lines. He actually would, would do what you say. You know, yeah. he was really, he believed that getting other people to read your writing while you were in the process of writing was a kind of way of improving the work, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, he's a certain, he's a, he's a big figure in the journals. I mean, he's there. He I mean, is. All, all the kind of things that you, you're describing, the, the yeah, setting up the poetry workshops. Yeah. And, and it's always a mixture of annoyance and, and delight. <laughs> well, well, that's what I was going to say, because, because, because there's also yeah. a sense, there's a sense also of, of him as a tormented figure, like, and he's he's torme- tormented. he's tormented by, for instance, he's tormented by Heaney's success. I mean, I had many conversations with Sean Dunn and Montague in the Long Valley, you say, yeah. in, in 1979, yeah. and John is still desperately worried about Seamus Heaney's and yeah. Faber's threat to his reputation. I think there's a scene where he's he, he's kind of crying almost in in the Long Valley. He's saying that Heaney is going to win the Nobel, and this is years years before it happened. Yes, yes, um, this was extraordinary. He came back. I remember John came back from a reading tour of America in 86, I think it was. Yeah. 85 or 86. She, and Seamus had been at Harvard then, I think four years about. And John said to me, you know, the word in America is that Heaney's going to win the Nobel Prize and he's being set up to win. I said, I remember saying, that's ridiculous. Like <laughs> there's Mara Vokati and there's Thomas Kinsella, yeah. like before him. Like there's a queue here, you know, <laughs> and people need to stop jumping the queue. Yeah. And so like I had a very much an, an anthologist's view of Irish poetry. Yeah. You know, there's a pecking order. Um, yeah. And I felt there's no way anybody will jump the queue ahead of Thomas Kinsler or, or Mara Vakati, you know, who I felt was an akmatova of Irish poetry, you know, and would surely be honoured. But... And you know, he was he was proven correct. Yeah, it was, he was right. But he, he was, was right. Yeah, 
Yeah, I thought that was interesting. And it happened, it happened on the day that his own collector's poems... Oh, God, were launched in were Dublin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we had had the launch the previous night in Cork, actually. Yeah. It was a great night. Yeah, there was, was two days' night. difference between his collector's and then the announcement, which you read yeah. at the beginning. Yeah. So, I yeah. mean, that was unfortunate as well, I think, for him, wasn't it? It was, yeah. But what I think what... Uh, and I talk about it in the diaries because poetic reputations are interesting things, you know. Like... John had this notion that there could, and I think he got it from American, from kind of, from Lowell and Rethke and the rivalry between Rethke and Lowell and he'd feeling that there's always a top poet in the campus world, you know, the world of the American academe, there's the top poet. Mm-hmm. But I was always say to him, there are mm-hmm. many, you know, there are many big names, you can be a big name, but you could only be one of maybe ten big names in a scene, you know, you don't have to be the biggest name. And I could never, mm-hmm. I just could never yeah. convince mm-hmm. him of that, you know. It was strange, whereas Cronin understood that, like Tony Cronin, who was, I think, much more kind of social and political a person, understood that there could be many big names, you know, in a, in a, in a culture, in a literary culture. And that just because one got very, very big didn't really, in a sense, almost yeah. did not do really any damage to the other big names, you know. But John didn't believe that. And that made him unhappy, I suppose, it did. essentially, didn't yeah. it? Even though he it was did. he was international, he was brilliant. Anytime I met him, he was utterly mischievous as well. I, I always oh, enjoyed. He had a fantastic sense of humour and he was actually brilliant at kind of taking on the mannerisms of people when he'd be telling stories yeah. about them, you know. Yeah. And like he was constantly amused by, you know, Thomas Kinsella and Richard Murphy. I think Richard Murphy entertained everybody, mm-hmm. you know, with what he was doing in his life and trying to make a beautiful life yeah. as a poet, you know. At one stage, you say you're describing Montague, he's very downhearted. And you quote um, Sepphoris in a Paris Review interview. He says that success and honours are mere accidents within one's literary life. The real victory is that the life continues within art. I thought that was really wise. Do you, do you still agree with that, Tom? 100%. Yeah. Nothing has ever happened and I've read nothing that would change that perspective. Yeah. Like the, the art in your life is the centre of your life. I think there's a, I always remember another writer whose diaries I absolutely love, even though they're quite pedantic, is Arnold Bennett, the mm-hmm. English novelist who was, you know, brought up in the potteries of uh, the north of England or the Midlands, North Midlands. But, Arnold Bennett's stories are so interesting because he was a very practical person. And in his late 30s, Arnold Bennett talks about, I, I've received, I've just received the latest issue of the Westminster Gazette. I have a very good story. My, my name does not appear on the cover. And lots of other people who I consider minor, their names are on the cover of the magazine. He said, and then I find myself feeling envious of these younger writers who are getting and then he says I stop myself because literary envy is a form of cannibalism you can't want your own life and somebody else's life as well you know if you're a writer the life that's creating the writing the poetry and the prose is your life no other life can create that work and Bennett knew that you know Going back, Tom, going back to your own work and, and, and life, 
you know, back in, 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 in 1977, you win the Patrick Kavanagh Award, uh, which is judged by John McGahern and, and Seamus Heaney. And that's a, a big deal. And uh, we, we write poetry to be noticed, to become visible. Quite suddenly, I'm visible, you say. My photograph is in every national paper. It's unreal. I mean, it's kind of funny to think, I mean, because that changed things dramatically for you. But also, it's a, maybe it was a time when poets maybe could get noticed. I mean, it's, I think it's a bit harder now uh, in, in a way. But that that sense of, of visibility and you know, you had lots more successes too. You were a fellow of the famous um, writing program in the International Writing Program in, in Iowa uh, in seventy eight, seventy nine. Well, all that was part. All, all that was caused by the the publicity around the Kavanaugh Award that year. The American ambassador noticed the Kavanaugh Award, noticed my name, and then noticed and had a cutting. Actually, had cut it out of the Irish Times. Ivan Boland's review of the first book that won the Kavanaugh Award, the first convention, and he contacted me. I remember that getting that phone call at the lending desk of the library, and I thought the city hall telephonist was joking. You know, she said the American ambassador is on the phone, wishes to speak to you, and I was kind of mocking her down the phone, and the ambassador came on. Oh, I had to start all over again uh, to, to take the phone call. It was kind of unreal. That was those were unreal years, but they were unreal in a in in a very in a nice way where you feel a kind of a very strong wind had suddenly blown into your sails, and you were actually being carried along. You know, it's a fa- it was, I think, a fantastic feeling. And Iowa was an exciting time for you too, wasn't it? Iowa was amazing because yeah. of the people I met there. You know, not just Marvin Bell, who was a beautiful. Uh, who had just published Stars Which See, Stars Which Do Not See, that incredible collection of poems, just beautiful poems. Yeah. Every poem in that book is special, beautiful lyrics, but typical watertight Iowa workshop poems, you know. But uh, Bill Meredith and people like that, W.S. Merwin, uh, even uh, Fez Ahmed, Fez the great Urdu yeah. poet, Fez who wrote in Urdu, um, when he, he was actually a colonel in the British Indian Army during the war and at, at the general's dinner party, the wife of the general said, Colonel Fez, I hear you're a poet. And uh, could you read us some of your poems after dinner? And he said, ma'am, I'm afraid I, I write in Urdu. And there was silence at the dinner table. And she said, good God, I wish people wrote in English. It's so much more convenient for everybody. She said, that was a sort of, Poor Fez's uh, encounter with British <laughs> civilization, but uh, and its primacy in in the world, and I Ching, the great, the beautiful uh, um, Chinese poet I met there too. I Ching was a great friend of Hualien Nie, who was a co-director of the Iowa program at that stage. Oh wow! It sounds like it was a brilliant time. Um, I loved it. Was it was brilliant because I was young, you know? Yeah. It was like I think. Every time is brilliant if you're suddenly thrown into a milieu, an exotic milieu, and you're only 24, you know. I remember that myself starting off, the energy and the excitement and the buzz, you know, when things are happening. It's it's great to be young and to have the energy and to be able to go there and be free of commitments to do something like that. It's brilliant. But I think it's important that people know that you can grow old too and still think it's fabulous. Yeah, exactly. Involved in the writing world and involved in the publishing world. 
Yeah, and Tom you, still you gets know. excited if a poem is published or exactly. if you feel you might have got there on a poem. Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah, yeah. I do think yeah, yeah. I still get excited. Um, otherwise, there'd be no point doing it, I think. You have to have that excitement. But your journals are filled with um, travels and encounters. You've just mentioned people there that you met in Iowa. But in London in 1982, you, you literally bump into one of my favourite writers, Rosamond Lehman. And oh, if Rosamond I had been there Lehman, with you, yeah. Tom, as well, I would have said, yeah, I do know your work as well. And she's she's holding your hand and exclaiming, oh, you've made my day, an Irish poet who knows about me. I love her work. And she held my hand as we walked. Yeah, as we walked through the squares of South oh, Kensington. Wow. And then she bloody well, she fi- came to her car and there was a parking oh, no. fine, <laughs> a notice of a fine on her car. And she was oh. fuming and she gave out to Adrian. Adrian at the time was on May, on Chelsea Council, Adrian Fitzgerald, who was the brigadier's oh, yeah, godson. Yeah, I was wondering who he was. So he's, yeah. He's, yeah, he's now Sir Adrian. He's the Knight of Kerry, the 26th Knight oh of Kerry, gosh. I think. Sir Adrian Fitzgerald, he's a baronet as well. Um, in fact, I was on the phone to him really? the other day. Adrian. And what was she like, Rosamond um, Lehman? Did you get to have a bit of a chat with her along the way? Yeah, she was totally charming. Like, she turned on the charm she was just talking about uh, how wonderful it is to be a poet yeah. you know she was just saying how wonderful it is to be a poet marvellous it is to be an oh, Irish that's great. poet you know she had this kind of romantic yeah, notion of the Irish poet um, which certainly a certain generation of English yeah. people did yeah there was Hugo Williams there was Vincent Buckley which I was interested in because I went out to Australia Vincent, myself love. Vincent came to actually to stay with me yeah. in Cork yeah Vincent who was a you hero worshipped Thomas Kinsella, I think, and had a huge, an extraordinary instinctive, as well as a learned understanding of what Kinsella right. was doing in terms of language and philosophy, you know, uh, that kind of late monkey Catholic existentialism, mm-hmm. the darkness, you know, yeah. which I couldn't get into, you know the way Vincent could. Yeah, because when I went to Australia that time for the, the prize that they initiated after his death, yeah, I met his yeah. his widow, Penny, but I never met him Penny. and I always wanted to meet him because I'd read his poetry. So it's great to, to, to encounter people that you'd always wanted to meet yeah. in your journals as well, Tom. And then there's Paddy Galvin, who I know you're passionate oh. about as a person and a poet. Yeah. There was, do, do, would you like to talk about him a little bit, Tom? Well, he was just a beautiful person. He just was. Mm. Uh, he was as cool and chilled as Montague was anxious. Mm-hmm. Like he was just like totally chilled about other people being famous and him not being so famous. Yeah. Because he was just so sure of the purpose of his poetry and his writing. He was a deeply committed socialist. Mm-hmm. You know, he believed in the international front that writing presented to the world and he felt that writers were in the vanguard of kind of the ultimate journey of political justice you know he had that incredible political belief in the virtue of a poet's life you know and never lost that Tom, another, just another point entirely. I mean, I mean, you know, you, you left UCC, you took a job at Cork City Libraries, and you and you and you and you were there until 2014. But there's also like there's an ongoing concern. I mean, there's, there's financial concerns. For instance, you you win an award and you can buy a kitchen table. At one point, you have to sell beloved books um, to get through kind of a, a hard time. And it's just a, there's a kind of current of this of difficulty and 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 poverty. Need is something that you that you that you knew well, and you see a number of things about that. You say, for instance, that poverty robbed you of of a childhood, and you know that notion recurred. You say, what, you say, for instance, that public life 
doesn't impinge on the poor. There's a strong sense throughout this, throughout the journals of, you know, there's a kind of a disenfranchised, marginalised Ireland that goes on in parallel to what we might think of as official Ireland. Well, you know, having opinions about public events and in a way participating, if you like, in a kind of public discourse, like once you're not hungry, once you're able to do that, you know, be involved in public discourses of various kind, I think you're saved, you know. I think you've got you've got out of the intense claustrophobia of poverty. It's a poor childhood and a poor family in a poor, I'm just thinking yeah. of a poor family in any council estate in the count, county Waterford, county Cork or a poor council estate in Dublin. That family is just intensely private and self-referencing just to survive week by week and like events when they occur they're hardly ever good events they're nearly all traumas of some kind uh, it's very hard to to even record that feeling you know because once you've started recording that feeling of claustrophobia of poverty you've almost left the room of poverty you know so it's almost a, a state of being that can't be communicated you know certainly in any kind of middle-class way, because once you start communicating in that way, you've really left the room of poverty, because it is inarticulate in the end. The atmosphere, sometimes that is the atmosphere. I sometimes think there is a kind of a, a sort of decency or honesty in certain kind of Fianna Fáil discourse, you know, which seems kind of uneducated and kind of ignorant, I know, to educated people in Ireland. But it sort of touches it somehow. It's kind of an instinctive understanding of what really poor people are going through. And it is interesting that the working class of the industrial working class in the 60s in both kind of Cork and, and Dublin supported Fianna Fáil en masse, you know. It's as if the party sort of articulated something that was inarticulate. But of course, you know, then party policy lets those very people down, you know, in the long run. It's a tricky area, isn't it? It's like, because poverty and the experience of it, a bit like addiction, it's always a private, almost non-communicated state of being. And to start writing about it is almost to engage in, in what is ultimately a bourgeois discourse, you know. And so it, may, it must be surrounded by much silence, even among literary people, that feeling of poverty. You still, Tom, though, in in one of your uh, f- well, one of your poems that I really love, Largesse, in your book Pandemonium, you you talk about your mother and you said she who had nothing or little to give gave more than the shirt of her back, and then you say that bitter little winter called life knew nothing of her plenitude. I think you do describe well the poverty yeah. and the hard life that your parents had, and when you're looking in the coffin, then she died. She was only fifty three in nineteen seventy nine. Yeah. You're looking and yeah, you're saying yeah. she. It's very, very old. The world of poverty. Yeah, she looked like a person. Yeah, you say like it had cut so deep. And it was the grind of of keeping going. That was tough, wasn't it? That's, yeah, it is. It's very, very hard to make art of that, you know. Yeah. Very hard. But... But that poem, um, because it seems like the the deeper you go into it, the more it seems like just indulging in self pity. Mm -hmm. You know, which 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 is a disaster. Yeah. I think. Tom, you left Iowa in in nineteen seventy nine, and 
you kind of you wondered and you you wondered if you'd made a mistake coming back to oh to god Ireland. i did yeah and then, i really did <laughs> there's another point where america offers another possible life in 1994 when you and catherine and your wife and children go to saint paul in minnesota and you teach in the english department for a year and again you have a wonderful time and i wonder I mean, there's a sense sometimes of an alternative possibility, an alternative life in in the States. Would you have liked to have had that life? Would you like to have stayed in in America? Well, certainly not in the first instance, not 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 before Catherine, you know, because the only reason I met Catherine was I, I didn't stay in Iowa. I came back. Yeah, No, I mean, uh, meeting Catherine was the, the, the most incredible thing that happened in my life. But... Later, yeah, it's hard work as well as you know. Teaching is is hard work. Mm. You know, doing five courses in an English department, which would be your requirement, really. You know, unless you could get what what Thomas Kinsella got in 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 the, in the mid sixties, which is very interesting, which was a, a research professorship. You know, for two years, which was very handy. But there's work involved, no matter what you do, whether you have to come home and earn a living digging drains or stamping books in a library or whether you go to America and and teach poetry like mm. uh, like you you uh, you have to work somewhere you know yeah you you do have to earn a, a crust for many years really and that's the, you know that's going to keep the daily you know the daily grind is going to keep you away from your writing and what you want to do you want to be at a desk either reading or writing are writing about reading. You know, you want to be yeah. involved in one of those things. Um, yeah. So there's no way of avoiding it. So whether I had stayed in America at any point or, or come home at any point, I don't think in the end it would have made any great difference, really. Because, you know, uh, as, as, as Spike Milligan was asked, like, why he was born in India, he said he wanted to be near his mother. So it is with the poet, you know, you, you, the poet is where the creativity and the creation is going to occur. The poet at a desk mm-hmm. or, you know, with, with a notebook anyway in hand. And you're never going to escape from that condition, you know. It's nice, Tom, as well, the way you really give a sense in your journals about how important Catherine is to you. She's kind of a kindred spirit and you celebrate her successes as well because she published fine stories. She won prizes. So she really is the best thing that happened to you. Oh, yeah. And if I didn't, she you'd never know she had won those things yeah. because like she's, uh, I, I listen, this is an entirely different program, but why do brilliant women want to hide themselves away is one of the great mysteries. It's one of the great mysteries. Mm. She's an incredibly talented writer. She she published some amazing stories and wrote more even and then put it all away. I don't know why. Yeah. I'm hoping they might. I'm hoping they might. Yeah, yeah. It would be fantastic. Yeah, well, yeah. maybe they might appear yeah. again, Tom. That would be lovely. That would be brilliant. <laughs> I'd I'd love to read them. You spent you spent a period working for uh, Cork 2005, and you write quite vividly about that. And it was sort of, in many ways, a disillusioning experience. It seemed like a very difficult period with resignations and kind of lack of support from the city. And, and I was the most, I think I held the record, the <laughs> office record for the most threatened resignation. The most threatened, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I just wondered, because, like, is it important, you know, that kind of public work, <laughs> is it important for a poet to undertake and, or does it hinder the creative side? I mean, did you ever have, did you ever regret that in a way. I think ultimately it does no harm, you know, whether you get involved with theatre work or get involved with something, whether it's an art centre or a writing centre. I think it's good to be engaged. It, 
I think it lightens your own prose, certainly. It probably makes your own poems skip more intensely as well because you're getting tensions that are coming in from outside. I mean, I, uh, Cork 2005, I had absolutely no experience of arts administration. I had no idea what the consequences of rejecting large numbers of project proposals from artists and artistic community and artistic community would mean. You know, people who work so hard to create a proposal, write a proposal, spend both money and time doing it. And then at the end of the day, you know that the budget and the time constraints mean that you're going to reject 95% of all the proposals that will come in. Oh, the negativity. I I just didn't know how to cope with the negativity at all. Uh, I'd never I'd never experienced it before. In fact, I'd, I think in my life I had avoided it completely. So it was the first time on a daily basis, mm-hmm. working probably 16 hours a day, I would say, six days a week, um, because you were never free. Yeah. I had to cope with the stress of arts administration. Just related to that, Tom, I mean, I mean, because obviously you've spent your life in, in, in Cork and you write about Cork and you sometimes feel that, for instance, the poets based in Cork don't have an audience in, in, in Dublin and maybe that's tr- true the other way around. Y- you know, so the local, I suppose, versus the national plays a part in your thinking. I mean, at the same time, you say that it's important to stay engaged in a national conversation. Definitely important, particularly for poets who don't live in Dublin. It's important to stay just engaged in the national conversation, right. you know, as I think in a small country, whether it's Ireland or Greece, like there must be one, there must be an abiding national conversation that advances uh-huh. the civilization, you know, decade after decade. And it really, it's really important to try and contribute in some small way to that national conversation. Cork is very interesting. I like, I, I mean, I, I, I talk like a Cork man now, but I'm actually a Waterford man. <laughs> I know, um, yeah. I, yeah, I'm from Waterford. Like, my, like myself, Tom. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're we're day shocks really, um, yeah, yeah. and Waterford is still the team I would support. But what used to intrigue me and infuriate me was the kind of relationship between Cork and Dublin. It was a sort of big brother little brother relationship mm-hmm. a lot of the time, and it was a huge problem when we were trying to articulate Cork two thousand and five European Capital of Culture on a kind of a national scale. Because we'd inevitably run into the kind of local chauvinism versus perceptions which were national of the city of Cork and how it operates. But I mean, as I know from reading history, like that difficult relationship between Cork and Dublin goes back probably to the 1600s and the pretender to the English throne, Perkin Warbeck, who was adopted in Cork. And that was when the Dublin authorities started calling Cork Rebel Cork, you know. That's the origin of it. And that discourse has never changed in 400 years. It has never changed. And that feeling, I'll always remember when I I was only about a week in the Cork 2005 office when I got a phone call from the sports department of RTE. And this irate sports journalist in RT said to me, I've just been reading this new book called 100 National Titles. And it claims that Cork teams have won 100 titles in all the codes in GA sport. We've been looking at that here in the sports department. We can only count 92 titles for Cork. 
where are you getting this hundred titles? And I said to him, do you know what? I have absolutely no interest in sport. Maybe I could put you on to somebody who has an interest in sport. But I said I wouldn't worry too much about it if I was you. Uh, so so there's that, that kind of, and this was a, sort of coming from Dublin, from a Dubliner, a guy with a Dublin accent, you know, uh, who was kind of resenting this claim, like, for God's sake, who cares? You know, write a poem for me, you know. Exactly. Well, will we go back now to the diaries? Yeah. Okay, we're now going yeah, back yeah. to the idea of the diaries because um, we want to move on to to lots of other exciting <laughs> things. Um, but I'm I'm just we've had a lot of excitement this morning. Actually, it's been great talking to you, Tom. But um, I liked the bit in the journals when you were talking about this lovely American young woman called Deborah Toll, who oh, yeah. she wrote a memoir called oh, the, the Island of the White Cow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, th- then you said, um, you know, it caused a big yeah. stir in yeah, Dublin yeah. literary circles, you said, and you said, what is it about us Irish that we fear these memoirs and diaries? We react to published diaries as if they were all written as deliberate betrayals. Is it some deep peasant mistrust of openness? So were you worried yourself? Were you concerned about the effect that your journals might have? Did you have to edit them, leave things out? Um, because we noticed when we were reading them, Peter and I, that there were periods without any entries. So were you worried about the effect that, that w- what you were saying might have on people or that it might cause offence? Oh, definitely. All there the, all there the would have been worries. some scurrilous entries which would have been cut out, definitely, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, That's a pity, more, Tom. More, um, <laughs> I think there's a, you see, this is where the pattern comes in. Like, the patterns of the, the whole thing doesn't lie. It's amazing that even if you cut out sort of, uh, well, first of all, the laws of libel in Ireland are extremely serious laws um, and would have huge yeah, consequences yeah. and I'm poor enough as it is. So you'd you'd have to be careful about those things. But very few people actually in my life so far have given me offence, you know. Like, I'm always interested in the other point of view in, and, you know, I'm wondering where it's coming from. I find bitterness interesting, you know, mm-hmm. people being bitter about things. I find it attractive, like it attracts me to people because uh, I want to hear what's the source of their bitterness, you know, about life or about their career or something, you know. I suppose uh, there's probably mm. enough empathy, I feel, in the di- in the journals yeah. that it kind of is a counterbalance to any report yeah. of bitterness in other people, you know. We we lent this part of the conversation now. It's been so interesting to talk to you, Tom. And you're going to read a poem from your collection, Prophecy. It's called uh, Thighbone of a Deer. And Tom, it's in a way, in a curious way, it's connected to the journals on Glentonon House and Iowa, isn't it? It is really, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because it really is about that moment of transition from a kind of a dream of childhood and adolescence into sort of the adult world where you become the full agent mm. of decisions you make, you know. And that that moment presented itself. Thigh bone of a deer. The quality of sunlight. I mean the quality of light on a morning in Iowa when you can't even remember what you had for breakfast or even if you had a breakfast. To float. To be young and to have broken free. Linden trees float above you in a lacuna that youth has made just in time, before all of Ireland might have been lost to your careworn childhood. Coffee and the scent of cinnamon under pale leaves, the cinnamon of Iowa City, 
the coffee cup, replenished by a boy you still don't recognise as gay. A sweetheart of a boy who misunderstood a gesture or a word or your ability to quote C.P. Cavafy and all the brittle poems from a sunlit room in Alexandria. Was Ray Delvin a boy or a girl? How little you know of her burning sunlit pages. What you are thinking of is a girl with brown eyes in a lost poem from another language, a poem as delicate as a small boy with woman's eyes. You are now afloat in the long American summer after Vietnam, when all of the burning issues became personal things. The best poets in Marvin Bell's workshop dream of watching for fires in a forest southeast of Seattle. They must choose for career to follow Aldo Leopold's Sand County Almanac. But you must choose a girl or boy fashioned from the wind-swept thigh-bone of a deer. It is sunlit beneath these pale trees in Iowa. It is so far away from that Irish world of wars and memoirs, from that elderly man you knew wearing a lemon waistcoat and a frayed guard's tie and a scratched tank watch with a blue and red canvas strap. I think that man must have been the youth the elder loved when he and him were very young. The housekeeper back home said that they bo were both handsome but inaccessible. I didn't know then what her tone of voice meant. I mean her own settled and married intonation that crackled down the line from a damp, tied cottage. A full-size bronze of the god Hermes, a very expensive purchase from Artemis S.A. of the protector of merchants in a classical Lysippan pose, was all the rage in the household that summer of 78. The sculpture was something that defined them both, both who'd parted long after the housekeeper had been forsaken and long before the hope of romance had returned to Europe. That pause when Al Bowley went silent, waiting for all dancers to turn and regroup and the old vinyl that I'd rescued from among things in a life he'd once lived, that pause of the Ray Noble Orchestra, seemed like the muffled plurp of the Chateau Lafitte 45 his lover had brought and insisted they open. In my life there were brilliant new openings, that promise of sunlight in Iowa, all that cinnamon, and these coffee cups borne by persons whose names I couldn't remember even then. But in his long life, ebbing away from me now as our Pan Am jumbo banked in a holding pattern over Chicago, in his life, it seemed like the end of one long season in Mayfair, the end of wine as deep as twenty-year-old tawny port, of a deep love known once, of such a crew, such a compote of Cavafy, tannin and art. And that was Tom McCarthy reading Thigh Bone of a Deer, published 
in his collection Prophecy, which came out from Carcanet Press in April 2019. And that feeling of youth and being free really, I think, uh, links in very well with the Toaster Challenge. Um, Tom has chosen a book which he read five times since 1980. He began reading it when he was 26, I think. And Tom's going to talk for about three minutes. We're going to put the bread into the toaster and um, he's going to be challenged to fit, fit his love of his book into that time. So, Tom, are you ready to tell us I about am. the book that you love I so am. much? Okay. <laughs> We're going to push the toast down. One, two, okay. three, and go. Off and you the go. Book, and you the go. book I've chosen is a book I absolutely love. It's called Young in the Twenties, a chapter of autobiography by Ethel Mannon. Now, I don't know, do many people read Ethel Mannon anymore? She was an incredibly prolific English writer with some Irish antecedents, Galway antecedents, actually, and she owned a cottage for years near Clifton in Galway in the 50s, I think. Um, and she wrote 50 novels and the same number of non-fiction books. Many people will probably know, older generation people will know her beautiful novel, Late Have I Loved Thee, which is about uh, the conversion of a person to Catholicism. She also wrote wonderful non-fiction books like South to Samarkand and one of her last books, The Lovely Land, The Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan in 1965. But Young in the Twenties is the beauty of a book. It's it's really the story of her youth in the twenties. And let me begin with, with herself and her own words. On January the 1st, 1920, I was just over 19 years old, newly married, pregnant, working in the London Advertising Agency, to which I had gone in the summer of 1916 at the age of 15 and living in furnished rooms in Strawberry Hill with my husband, who was a copywriter in the same agency to which he had returned after having been demobbed. Whatever was happening in this brand new decade, I was not much interested in it, being too busy living my life. So that's how the the book begins. Mm. And then she talks about her life all through the 20s. And as she says in the book, mm. the 20s really lasted until around 1936. It was a long decade. It really ended with the, the Spanish Civil War and the rumbles of war and people becoming serious. Yeah. But she felt that for about 15 mm -hmm. years, the 1920s world wasn't serious. It was gay. And she writes about the great aesthetic excitement of the 30s was undoubtedly the Diagle of Ballet. But I want to write here, she says in her book, about something else. I'm concerned here only to present the general scene. This 20 scene was dominated by the dancing. Tea dances and dinner dances, the nightclubs and the late night restaurants with floor shows, the jazz craze, Paul Whiteman's band, the Hammersmith Palais de Dance, Princes in Piccadilly, the Criterion Roof, Romanos in the Strand, the Savoy. It was very smart to dance at the Savoy after a theatre between courses of supper. You danced whenever and wherever you could, and it was not all Charleston. For one thing, this did not reach us from America until 1925, and for another, when it did, although we often Charlestons, it was Charleston, it was fun. Very often in the places we fre frequented, there simply was not sufficient floor space for such a kicking up of heels, such a throwing out of legs, for the sheer energetic athleticism of it all. So that's the oh, 1920s wow. yeah. for her, the dancing, and then the reading, reading Virginia Woolf. Noticing but not quite reading uh, Ulysses by James Joyce, 
like there were authors who she bought, whose books she bought and, and, and she didn't quite read. She, uh, she wasn't ready to read them, including uh, Aldous Huxley, you know, Chrome Yellow and all those novels of the 1920s from Huxley. So there was Russian ballet. Um, there was basically dancing the Charleston. There was travel. Air travel, her first flight as a young mother with her daughter from Croydon to Paris, Croydon Airport, which was the kind of original airport that they all use. Um, and so flying mm. abroad was such a fun thing and just going abroad, going just, uh, by ship to Dieppe and spending one night in Dieppe are going to Bologna just for a night and spending a night in there just to, to send some letters home from abroad. The whole idea was to be abroad. It was sort of yeah. really almost, I think, what we're going to experience again in the 2020s. You know, the, the 20, 1920s had been delayed to some extent also by a great pandemic, the Spanish flu, just as we have been delayed in our ni- 2020s by, by the COVID epidemic. And I feel when the 20s get going, it's going to be fantastic for us as well. They're going to be, be roaring, roaring, Tom, aren't we'll they? Roar the roaring 20s. 20s. We definitely will. So a very prophetic yeah, that's, book that's then. That's, that's why it's I into young in the 20s. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really want to read it, Tom. And thank you so much for that. We've been very privileged this morning to have Tom McCarthy in at our breakfast table talking about his recently published journals, Poetry, Memory and the Party, 1974 to 2014, published by Gallery Press. And just speaking there about Young in the Twenties by Ethel Mannon. We'll all be going out to try and find that book, Tom. And details of all the books will be available on our website, booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. Dot com. Thank you very much, Tom McCarthy, Thank for you. coming in. We, I think we've reached the end of our Books for Breakfast podcast this morning. I'm definitely rushing off to have more coffee. And I'm Enda Wiley and I have Peter Sarah here with me. And Peter, would you like to tell everyone about the details of the podcast if they'd like to listen again? Well, you can subscribe at all the usual sources, Google and Apple and so on. And if you want to check out the notes that go along with this podcast, you can go to booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. And yeah, so. We'll be back again. We'll have the toast on. We'll have the kettle boiling. We will have more books to discuss. And we're looking forward to having you here. So goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.